back again, are you? And so soon? Well, we do like repeat customers here at the Kirsten, so why not settle yourself in while I lock up? We've got more bone-chilling tales for you this week, ranging from small-town America to the depths of Eastern Europe. Why don't you stay a while and listen? And yes, we do have rooms available, just in case you don't want to make the walk home in the dark. The creatures of the night could be lurking at any corner. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't open that. For now. Shall we begin? The fear of the dark is one of the most primal and natural of fears. It's something we're born with, an ancient survival trait that stopped us getting eaten by the predators which stalked the night. These days we're told it's a little more than an evolutionary hangover, that our fear of the dark is irrational now that we live safely inside of our homes. After hearing this story, perhaps there is still something out there worth fearing. This tale is entitled, My Hometown Had Very Strict Measures. I was born in a small town in Eastern Europe. I won't tell you its name or which country it's in. I believe it is better if it remains free of tourists. Suffice it to say, it was no place special. It wasn't small enough that everyone knew each other by name, but it was small enough that you'd know most people's faces. It had a mall, a movie theater, nice schools, interesting architecture, more churches than we ever needed, and the biggest point of pride for the locals was our almost zero crime rate. At worst, some teens would vandalize an old building. But other than that, it was the safest town in the country. If you ever went there, you might attribute that to the extreme measures people took to ensure their house could not be broken into. Although, you'd only see that if you happen to visit on the last day of the month. I remembered the routine very well. We repeated it every month of my life, always on the last day. My mother would kiss my father as he left for work and sternly warn him to come back before sunset. My father always promised that he would. He never broke that promise. We never had school that day, and most parents, including my mother, didn't allow their children to play outside. Kids and rebellious teenagers were kept indoors all day, along with pets. I later discovered it wasn't always this way. But you know how children are. They start playing with their friends, lose track of time, and when sunset comes around, they still haven't made it home. It was safer to keep them from leaving home at all. When my father came home, he and my mother would immediately begin locking up. My grandparents always came to spend the night with us. I would sit in the living room with them and watch as my parents went about their careful procedure. My father would carefully lock each and every door and window in the house. My mother would follow him, double-checking each lock and crossing them of a list she carried. When they were done, 
they would make another sweep of the house, my father triple-checking the locks and my mother pulling down the blinds and closing the curtains. Then they would place a steel plate over the fireplace, screwing it in with practiced ease and do the same to the front and back doors. In the morning, they were removed and put back in the attic. The nights were most awful during winter. Not being able to light up the fireplace meant that the only way to keep warm was to bundle up in blankets, which never felt like they were enough, even with six of them piled on top of us. After the locking ceremony, we'd gather in the living room, closing that door also, and wait out the night. We could talk, but not very loudly. No one usually felt like talking anyway. We could sleep, but it was rare that anyone actually felt relaxed enough to even try. We always opened up the sofa bed though, to spare my grandparents' backs if they wanted to. They never did. We were all too tense, jumping at every slight noise. If the furniture made a cracking sound, we'd almost have a collective heart attack. A sneeze could induce a panic attack. We kept two oil lamps burning, not because we needed the extra light, but so we wouldn't be left in darkness should one go out for some reason. We had a third lamp to be lit should anyone need to go to the bathroom. If so, they never went alone. You had to take two people with you. When I needed to go, my father and grandfather would take me. The bathroom door was kept open while we were in there, and we weren't allowed to flush, no matter what we had done. Whoever accompanied you took my father's shotgun on a trip. Those who stayed in the living room kept a hunting rifle ready to fire until the others returned. Hated my body on those nights. Hated it and its need to piss and shit. I would try to keep it in for as long as I could, because nothing scared me more than having to cross a dark house with an armed man at my back and another holding a lamp which cast the most horrible shadows. We weren't allowed to simply turn on the lights. No lights. No sound. Nothing that might call their attention. It was harder for people with babies and small children. They don't really understand the gravity of the situation. They cry loudly and throw tantrums. More babies were buried in my town than any other, accidentally smothered by their mothers desperately trying to quiet them. There was never an arrest or even an investigation. Everyone understood the terror that had driven them to that. Most nights were quiet. I would distract myself playing cards alone or straining my eyes to read. Sometimes I could get bored enough to forget I was terrified. But there were noisy nights. Nights when they roamed very close to our house. There was no forgetting on those nights. None of us dared to leave the living room when they were close. If we really couldn't hold it in, we had to do it in a bucket. You might be wondering what exactly drove us to such extremes. The thing is, I don't know any more than you do. I never saw anything. No one ever talked 
about what happened on the last day of every month. It was like it didn't happen. I asked my parents once, when I was very young, but old enough to finally realize this wasn't a normal situation, what was out there on those nights. My father shrugged. Evil, he said. I don't think he knew either, but it was evil of that, I'm sure. We could feel it in our bones, an animal instinct rising up as the night got closer warning us that something was wrong in this place. It was always sunny on the last day of the month, but it always felt cloudy. I noticed that as the years went by. Every time the daylight felt bluish, yet it also looked like, well, just your perfectly normal sunny day. It never rained. The temperature was always 22 degrees Celsius, all day, regardless of the season. The birds still sang, dogs barked, but they sounded underwater. To me, at least. Like I said, nobody mentioned what happened during the night. If others noticed these things, they kept it to themselves. Maybe they preferred to enjoy the normal days and face the night only when it came. I don't know. The rest of the month, everyone lived a normal life and even seemed happy. Not me. I just lived in nauseous expectation of the next night. Like I said, I never saw them. But I heard them. On those hellish, noisy nights. When they chose our home to haunt. They'd remind us that the danger was very real. We would hold our breaths, hearing them try every lock, looking for the one we'd forgotten. They were as meticulous in their attempted invasion of our home as my parents were in its defense. They would turn the handles, pull them, make the door shudder as they grew frustrated. They would try to open the windows making them creak in their frames. Sometimes, and God, those were the worst of all. It would make me hug my grandma tight and weep on her shoulder as she wept on mine. Even long after I could be considered a child, sometimes they dried the chimney. In the complete silence of our living room, we would hear a sound. A very subtle, rasping sound, like fingernails sliding down the wall. Then the clicks would start. We'd hear them, very deliberate clicks, on the other side of that steel plate, like an impatient boss tapping his shoe. My father would grab his shotgun, and my grandpa, or sometimes my mother, would take the rifle and they would aim it at the fireplace. They shook so badly I doubt they could have hit anything. While they were there, clicking behind the plate, we would feel the wrongness more than ever. The room seemed darker at once. Sometimes I swear it was like one of the oil lamps went out. What light there was felt bluish again. God forbid 
bed someone had used the bucket. The smell grew so intense. It was more like gasoline than piss. They would click and click and click. One time they knocked. I will never forget that sound. A polite knock from a friendly neighbor in the form of a warhammer beating on a steel plate. The sound echoed and the plate was dented. We had to have it replaced. Then there came more clicks and finally we heard them sliding up the chimney again. Whoever had managed to not drop their weapon would continue shakily aiming it at the fireplace until dawn. Another time we heard them upstairs. They got in. I mean, they didn't get in. They couldn't have, or I wouldn't be here telling you this. We checked the locks in the morning, and we hadn't forgotten a single one. But we heard them. We heard their footsteps in the room above ours. My bedroom, walking very slowly, stepping on every creaking floor. We think they did it on purpose. They wanted us to know they were there. My father was brave enough to get up and lock the living room door. But then he came back to us and we all huddled together, crying as quietly as we could, as they creaked their way downstairs and came to the door. Then they started scratching it, not like an animal, not with claws, they just scratched it very lightly. Like that, it was dark. I didn't see anything under the door. But it felt like they were there for hours, scratching away at the wood. In the morning, my throat hurt from trying to smother my sobs for so long. I couldn't sleep anymore, even though we were supposedly safe the other nights of the month. I begged my parents to move away. I think at one point, I literally got down on my knees and implored them to leave. They told me to be quiet. It was only one night. Nothing had happened. They didn't really get in. We must have gotten too scared and started hearing things, they said. So before the end of the month, I ran away. I was 15. I've never looked back. Sometimes I regret having been so rash. I miss my family, but I'm afraid of calling them or even sending them a letter. As far as I know, they only haunt that town. I'm afraid that maybe my family didn't move because we're not allowed to leave. I don't know, but I'm too afraid to risk doing anything that could make them find me and spread beyond that town. I still lock every door and window. Every night now, just in case. I have a boyfriend now. He believes I have OCD and tolerates this behavior. And he's helping me get over my fear of going outside past sundown. I'm afraid he's not having much success. 
I know he'll probably get tired of trying to fix me and leave. I wonder sometimes if a life like this was worth the escape. What would have happened if they had gotten through that locked door? I don't know that either. All I know is that very rarely, but still all too often, someone would make a mistake. A husband wouldn't check the locks enough times. A wife wouldn't close the shutters all the way. A child would become curious and open a window just to see. And in the morning, the town would be short one family. No one ever mentioned the disappeared family again. Just like them, it was like they'd never even existed. Their house would be sold. The new owners would look out for any crack they might come in through. And the months would go on. After what happened on my last night, I'm certain all those security measures were useless anyway. They could always come in any time they wanted. I don't know what they are, what they do to their victims. If they eat them, or drag them to hell, or unmake them, or what. I don't know what's their connection to that town. I do know that if they want to show me, a locked door won't stop them. I lock it anyway, just in case. It is a universal law that the strong will pick on the weak. It's a rule as old as time itself, the law of the jungle. When a young boy in a small town falls victim to a bully, there seems like there's little he can do but endure it. Of course, other people soon take notice. Most people simply do nothing more but watch and give pitying looks as they pass. However, there are others. Others who are willing to do more than just watch. This tale is entitled, How the Scarecrow Died. Josh was one of those kids who was just born to be a bully. He was built more like a gorilla than a human being, and he had the disposition of a Rottweiler, someone had just tried to neuter with a pair of rusty scissors. There are a lot of different ways to bully someone. Josh was an expert in all of them. He stole lunch money, shoved heads in toilets, beat kids up, and even pinched girls' asses in the hallways, but the thing that really made Josh born to be a bully was his dad. The man looked like an even bigger, uglier version of Josh, and he basically owned the small town that we all lived in. He seemed to think that he owned the people, too. Someone pointed out that Josh shouldn't slap girls' asses in the hallways. You can bet a few phone calls later that that person would be out of a job, thanks to Josh's daddy dearest. To this day, I sometimes wonder if the horrible events that would forever besmirch our town's history could have been avoided if someone had just held him accountable. Nobody ever did. I guess I'll never know why. The thing that started it was something simple. 
Josh took a special interest in making one particular kid's life miserable. Little Billy Williamson was just too easy of a target. He was skinny, pale. Kids called him the Scarecrow because of the patches in his clothes. Of course, it wasn't Billy's fault that his mom was poor, couldn't afford new clothes. But you know how cruel kids can be when someone's different. Myself, I always just called him Billy. Every day, Josh would call out to Billy in the halls, Hey, Scarecrow, come on over here so I can beat the stuffing out of you. Thought this joke was so clever that he repeated it every single day. And if Billy didn't laugh, then he'd end up with his head stuck in the toilet, or worse. Things went on like that for a while. Nobody seemed to bother with sticking up for Billy, and his overlarge clothes hid the scars that had begun to grow like tree roots down his arms. I never understood why the people this world spits on always end up punishing themselves more, but I guess that's just how it goes. Billy eventually shut down entirely. He wouldn't talk to anyone. Wouldn't look you in the eye. The kid was scared of his own damn shadow. We all thought things couldn't possibly get any worse, but I guess fate didn't really care too much for our ideas. Because that week Billy's mom died. And within a few days, the whole town knew that she'd been found with a needle in her arm. If that was a cause for reprieve, then Josh didn't see it. Rather, he thought the opposite. His prey was wounded. Now it was time to move in for the kill. <laughs> Heard about how your mom died. He'd hiss under his breath when there were no teachers around. You know, I wish I'd have found her. Even for a smackhead, your mom was a nice piece of ass. You're living with your grandma now, aren't you? <laughs> Maybe I'll pay her a visit tonight. I don't think she'd put up too much of a fight, eh? Nobody seemed to notice, as the gashes on Billy's arms spread to his chest, his legs, how his face would twitch whenever Josh's insults echoed behind his eyes. Nobody noticed that he'd started writing in his diary about how much he'd like to steal his grandpa's gun and put an end to things his way. Sometimes he'll see a story about a kid like Billy on the news and wonder how nobody stepped in, how nobody saw what was going on in their head. And the answer to that's simple. It's just easier to look away. The uglier truth is, the less people want to face it, because then they'll have to ask themselves why they did nothing for so long. Last day before it happened, Josh had cornered Billy after school and beat him within an inch of his life. When he got home that day, his face looked like a pound of raw ground beef. As he stared at himself in the mirror, he decided tomorrow. Tomorrow was the day he'd do it. End it. He snuck into his grandpa's room that night, grabbed grandpa's old 357 revolver from under the bed. He didn't know where to find more ammo, but he knew his grandpa kept it loaded in case of a break-in. 
Next morning, he tucked the revolver in his waistband and slid a long shirt over it. He didn't check to see if it was loaded. <laughs> he didn't even want to look at it. Yet he clenched his jaw with determination and caught the bus. When he got to school, he noticed there was a crowd outside by the football field. Thankful for the delay, he slid his way in between the shoulders and elbows to the front. And that's where he saw Josh. His former bully was naked. Gutted. From head to toe. And strapped to the field goal post. Straw poking out from the holes where he'd been sewn back up. His eyes were hollow pits, pecked out by birds before anyone had found him, and on top of his head, someone had placed an old scarecrow's hat. Billy left right then and came home. He barely glanced at me as he passed. Sitting there in my rocking chair and reading, rather he headed straight to his room and collapsed on the bed. It's the first time he slept easy in a long while. It's only a few days before the news had spread around the town that the boy had been murdered, and that when the police went to notify his dad, well, they found him dead too. To this day, they still don't know who did it. The police suspected Billy at first, and they must have asked me a dozen times if I'd seen my grandson leave the house that night, but I told them the same thing each time. I'd been awake all night watching TV in the den, and I would have seen him if he had left. I could tell they all thought I was senile, but none of them dared to say it to my face. Well, I'm older now. Looking back, I suppose I don't have much time left. It's probably time for the truth. I don't know what Billy was up to that night. Because I wasn't there. I was at Josh's house. And I was making damn sure that no one ever called my grandson Scarecrow ever again. No one fucking did. Dreams are a powerful creation of the sleeping brain. Visions of wondrous landscapes clash and mingle with terrible nightmares. Of course, no matter how incredible or terrifying, they all have the same thing in common. They're not real. Of course, one must remember, when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back at you. This tale is entitled, Dreams are a Two-Way Window. Infinity, captured in an hourglass. Turn it over and it begins again. That's what dreams are to me. I always romanticize dreams as a window into innumerable secret worlds and forbidden fantasies. It wasn't until I began lucid dreaming that I realized every time I look out through the window, something else is looking back at me. The concept of lucid dreaming fascinated me since I first learned about it in my psychology class. I couldn't even believe it was a real phenomenon at first. It seemed more like a superpower to me. To create any world or situation with such vivid detail that I became a god of my own in my personal universe. 
That must be too good to be true. But there it was, printed clearly in my psychology textbook. A guide how to induce lucid dreams. I even made a photocopy in the library to hang above my bed as a constant reminder to follow these steps until I mastered the elusive and subtle art. Step 1. Reality Checks The textbook recommended I try push a finger through my opposite hand at least 10 times a day. This will habituate the motion and make it more likely for it to occur in my dreams. When I try the check in a dream, the finger is supposed to pass straight through my hand and prove it isn't real. The self-awareness that I'm dreaming is what triggers lucidity. Step 2. Set an early alarm. I set it for two hours earlier than I usually wake up. When the alarm sounded, my goal is to turn it off without opening my eyes to make the next transition smoother. This technique is called wake-induced lucid dreaming. Step 3. Mindfulness. After that, I have to try and stay mentally awake while I let the rest of my body go back to sleep. This is known as sleep paralysis because my mind will be awake in a frozen body. It occurs because I have interrupted REM sleep where the dreams occur, prompting the body to return there as fast as possible. It took a few days of practice before things started to click. At first, I kept accidentally falling back asleep after my alarm rang. Soon, I was able to maintain concentration, but then I started to see some basic colors and shapes, and I got so excited that I finally woke up. The longer I persisted through, the more real the images became. Shapes morphed into forms, and the dabbled specks of light grew and twisted into rich tapestries of color. Sometimes it felt like an ordinary dream, but as I continued to practice, I learned to prolong my focus until the imagery fully matured. Less than a week had passed before I was reliably alert enough to perform my reality checks, and after that came absolute freedom. I began with enacting idle sexual fantasies, but the sheer possibility of exploration made it difficult for me to maintain attention on any one creation for long. My favorite dream to spin was where I stood in a dark room with a paintbrush that transformed everything it touched. Mountains ripped through the ground and soared at my command, and a single stroke on my eternal canvas brought flocks of birds into flight. Crystalline caverns, riding dragons, alien encounters, and the entire cosmos stitched into the back of my hand. I raced through my dreams with insatiable wonder and boundless delight. And I kept getting better, too. I invented a dozen more reality checks involving clocks, mirrors, counting fingers, anything to assure that I would always find a way to become aware. My worlds became more intricate, and I was able to cast distinct characters and plots to entertain me. It's not like this was the only thing going on in my life, but it was the best, and every night I couldn't wait to uncover the latest treasure in my mind. That was until I discovered I was being watched anyway. As my awareness became more defined, I grew cognizant to certain elements in my dreams, which remained stubbornly beyond my control. It started off as a vague uneasiness, which settled upon dreams like gathering dust of the spirit. I couldn't make out anything specifically wrong, but I can only describe the feeling as though I was a character in someone else's dreams. 
All I had to do was tear down my canvas and begin again, in a new dream though, and the feeling would be gone. For a little while, anyway. Each successive escape solidified the presence in my mind, and like an intrusive guilty thought, it penetrated my next dream. I built castles, only to find eyes I never conceived of watching me from cracks in the stone. A flight through the air went sour as the sun turned to watch my aerial maneuvers. On to an undersea adventure, but my paranoia amplified as an eel followed me relentlessly through the water. Reality checks confirmed my dream, but I couldn't banish these watchers. I could only hope to lose them by starting again, although each time they found me swifter than before. I became so unnerved that I forced myself to wake up. I found myself in a cold sweat, panting in the cool morning air. The first step of my morning ritual was to have a full range of reality checks. I allowed myself to relax as I passed each one. Just a bad dream, I told myself. I swatted the fly away which snuck in during the night and prepared myself for just another ordinary day. But once they found you, the watchers will never let go. I felt anxious all day, a sourceless, gnawing feeling that made me keep check over my shoulder. I second-guessed the motives of everyone who turned to look at me, and when my psychology professor asked me a question in class, I straight up froze. I had to try and push my finger through my palm, right in front of everyone, just to make sure. The warm pressure of skin against skin snapped me back to reality, and I was able to mumble a cohesive answer enough for him to turn away. But if I wasn't dreaming, then why did his eyes swim through his skin so that they continued watching me after he had turned? Even with his back to me, I could still see them peeking through his shaggy gray hair. Growing awareness works the same way in this world as it does in dreams. As soon as I became aware of one discrepancy, I began to notice them all. The same fly which had been following me all day continued dancing orbits above my head. Passing glazes lingered on me longer than they used to, and always, always the eyes would return to the most unlikely places. A dropped notebook on the floor opened to a perfect stretch of an eye looking at me. A sip of coffee left the fleeting imprint of something staring at me from the foam. From knots in the trees to chips in the sidewalk, everything was an eye and all of them were directed at me. I don't know whether it was a relief or a fresh terror that waited for me at home. Stepping into the bathroom, my reflection had completely disappeared. That was the first reality check to fail all day. At least, if I was still dreaming, then it meant I wasn't going crazy. I couldn't will myself to wake up anymore, though. No more than I could will myself not to see through open eyes. I tried throwing myself into bed, tossing fitfully, until I at last slipped into an uneasy slumber. I was hoping that falling asleep in a dream would be enough to make me wake up for real, but it only threw me into a fresh absurdity of dreams that even my awareness could not tame. Ghastly specters of thought whirled through a mind so saturated with fear that I lost track of right from left, of reality and fabrication. 
Lips began to accompany the eyes in more varied and tortured forms than my waking imagination could conjure. Faces pressed in and around me as though struggling to break free from the suffocating cloth that my dream enveloped them in. More than being watched, I was terrified they would start to speak to me. I don't know why, but just as I had bottled the divine spark of creation, I knew that they now dreamed of me and that I would be a slave to their slightest utterance. Faster I spun, willing myself to wake but holding back for the horror of what I might find there. Through the dreams, I raced, new ones forming before the searing lights of the last one had even faded from my vision. Worlds collided together into maddening abstraction, as men with fish heads rode on horses across the clouds with lances of lightning through the clouds. The faces pressed, withered lips peeling back to laugh and grunting in mockery of human speech. Endless possibilities are a double-edged sword. An eternity in heaven is not the same length as an eternity in hell. At least, now I know why they're watching. They're looking for a way out, just like you're looking for a way in. They've been doing this for much longer than you have, and whatever trick you think you know, you can count on them knowing too. I know because for as long as I practiced and prepared myself while awake, I've spent many times over learning from the watchers in my sleep. I'm awake now, for real this time, I think. Although. I run through my list of reality checks so compulsively that my palm is bloody and raw where the finger keeps pressing in. This isn't a warning against lucid dreaming though, however it may sound. I've seen how shrewdly the watchers hide, and know they were there watching me long before I became aware of their existence. They might not reveal themselves to you before you become lucid, but that only means you can't protect yourself from them until it's too late. Dreams are a two-way window, and if you aren't brave enough to stare down the face on the other side, then they can become a door as well. Oh, that was fun, don't you agree? Unfortunately, that's all the tales we have for you this time. But don't worry, there will be more to come. Do- Oh dear, who could that be? Excuse me for a moment. announcement time. If you're a writer and you think your story is sinister enough to be featured on our podcast, or if you'd like to volunteer as a voice actor, send us your demo at thecursedin at gmail.com and we'll see if you have what it takes to entertain our daily guests here at The Cursed Inn.
Don't forget to check out our page on Facebook and Twitter for updates. We'll see you very, very soon.